Amen. You may be seated. Precious, comforting truth. He will hold me fast. Hope you are singing your confidence, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles with you, to Romans chapter 14. We're picking back up our study in Romans. Approximately halfway through chapter 14. We started this study just after the Revolutionary War. Uh, no, it hadn't been that long ago. We're not in a hurry. We want to get it. Go fast enough to keep the forest and the trees in view slow enough, slower and faster in some passages. But we are in chapter 14, uh, picking back up where we left off. Before the holidays. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12 in chapter 14. And then we'll look at chapter verses 9 to 12 in the sermon. But This is God's word. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we, are, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to that end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then so then each one, each of us, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's for God's word. Let's pray. Lord, bless us today. By freeing us of things that are untrue that we might believe and establishing us in the truth. By your spirit taking your word and applying it to our hearts. Empower me to preach your word. 
Empower us to hear your word as the word of God, to love it and seek to live in its light. Lift high your son and draw all kinds of people to yourself. Lord, bless us with your word as we look into it. We ask for it. We know it is your will, so we trust for it. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, amen. Bow the knee. When you hear that, what do you think? When you, if you bow the knee before someone, you are recognizing their authority at least, right? Think about it. You've seen maybe a knighting ceremony in Britain where the queen would knight a person. They would bow on one knee on a little, I guess it's a little kneeling stand, and then be touched with the sword on the, on the shoulders. But you see examples of bowing the knee in scriptures too. And the leper who came to Christ for healing in Mark 140, he came imploring him and kneeling and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And he, he willed and he made him clean. But you notice that, that submission, that, that, that humble plea. Matthew 20, 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee who wanted an exalted position in the kingdom for her sons. It says this, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up with her sons and kneeling before him, Jesus, she asked for something. And she did not get what she asked for. Matthew 17, 14 and 15, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him, came up to Jesus and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. That man interceding for his son, coming up to Jesus and kneeling before him. And even our Savior shows us this type of attitude. It says in, in, in Luke twenty two forty one to 42, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw from Peter, James, and John, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. See the submission here. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So bowing the knee pictures an attitude of submission and surrender to a superior. And ideally, it's a humble recognition. And in our context, ideally, it's a humble recognition and submission to the authority of God over you. So we're going to talk today about bowing the knee from 9 to 14. And, and what Paul is doing here, he's, he's kind of laying a foundation. He's giving a main reason why we should not be quickly passing judgment on one another and despising one another over disputed matters. Our, our, our submission to Christ, being a humble submission, should set our attitude also toward one another. And I'll point you back to the sermons already preached. I won't re-preach the ones we've done on chapter 14. And you can go back and listen to those or listen again and catch up uh, to what we're doing here. But we're going to look at verses 9 to 12 this morning and see... I just titled it, Every Knee Shall Bow. So the main point is bow the knee to Christ as Lord, Judge, and God in the flesh. And we'll see those as, as three points. First, bow the knee to Christ as Lord, verse 9. 
He picks up again. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. He said, whether we die in that, in, up in verse 7 and 8, whether we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live, we live to the Lord. Our focus is to be on the Lord and pleasing the Lord. And we'll, we'll see that in the text. But just for a minute, stop. Look at verse 9. To this end, for this reason or purpose, literally for into this. This is an overarching reason or goal. It says, for this reason, to this end, Christ died and lived again. Look at that simple statement of the gospel. Christ died and lived again. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. I have that for you. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. This is Paul's gospel that he preached, right? And it says, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There is a false faith. There is a profession that's not real, that we want to beware. If it's not a repentant faith, it's not a true faith. It's one way to say it. But he says, this is the gospel by which you are being saved. If you have received it and you've taken your stand, you've placed your faith in this Christ. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That There's our word, Christ died. But it gives us a little more information. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That means the Old Testament Scriptures. There. And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There's the gospel. Jesus Christ died. Why did he die? For the sins of his people. He was the Lamb of God, John said, who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the Jews, but Gentiles as well. He was the Lamb of God pictured in the Old Testament. That pure, perfect, pure, spotless Lamb that would be sacrificed as an offering for sin. The soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death, and that's spiritual death as well as, well as physical death. It's condemnation by a holy and just and righteous God. And I will stop there, and if that doesn't make any sense to you, I'll, I'll recommend it. The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. It's a short, accessible book that you can read and better understand what is meant by the holiness of God. And when you get the holiness of God, you will see that you have a problem. That's what Isaiah found out, right? He said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He said, woe is me. I am undone. See, sins had to be paid for. We had to be reconciled to God. And we needed a pure and spotless lamb to do it. And Christ was that lamb, the lamb who came. And as he told John, he fulfilled all righteousness. He lived under his own law and kept it in thought, word, and deed. We had broken it. In thought, word, and deed. And that's why we need a Savior. But he, he lived in fulfillment of that law so that he was the pure and spotless Lamb who could then go to the cross and pay the penalty for his people's sins. So he, he died for our sins on the, on the cross. That physical suffering was horrible on the cross. One of the worst ways to ever die. It was nothing in comparison to that cup of God's wrath poured out upon him for the sins of his people. Because he was God and man, he could go to that cross and pay the penalty for our sins, which would have been for us eternal hell. That's why he died. That's what we 
talk about today. And that's what we will celebrate in the Lord's Supper is that Christ died for our sins. You cannot reconcile yourself to God. You cannot be good enough. You, your good works won't outweigh your bad. The Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you are called to bow your knee to receive that truth, to know who you are so that you look to Christ for mercy. See, this is all true that I'm telling you. And look, Paul just says it very simply. Christ lived, died, and lived again. And Paul, in the expansion in 1 Corinthians 15, goes on to say after it says he died for our sins. That's why he died. He paid our penalty. He said it is finished before he left the cross. He didn't pay any ransom to Satan or the demons, if you've ever heard that silly story. He went into the grave under the power of death for a time, and then he was raised the third day in accordance with the Scriptures for our justification, that we might trust in Him and be forgiven and cleansed from all of our sins and accounted as righteous in God's sight only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. hope that's ringing in your ears from the definition. That He was buried. He really died. He didn't just swoon. And He was raised on the third day. He's the living Lord, to whom we must give account. Have you come to that position in your life? Look at it back in verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord of both the dead and the living. He's Lord of His people. He's Lord of all the universe. But here specifically zeroing in, Lord of His people, whether they have died or dying or are living He is Lord. His death and resurrection together establish His Lordship over all people, especially His followers. Proved true by His resurrection. This is why we are called to humbly submit to His Lordship. If you go read in Acts chapter 17 near the end of the chapter, it will tell you that that Christ, that God has set a day He will judge the world through the man He's appointed. And he's given proof of this by raising him from the dead. The God-man, Jesus, was raised from the grave, proving that he's Lord. Yes, he was Lord in the manger. He was Lord according to his divine nature. But he's proved so, so we are to humbly kneel before our Lord. Psalm 95.6, Oh, come, let us worship and look at our, our attitude. Bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. That bowing down and that kneeling is, is first and foremost, a heart attitude. Because you know you can get down on one knee or two knees and it means nothing. It's not just a physical going through the motion. It's a heart that is bowed and kneeling before the Lord before it's ever a kneeling physically. You don't always have to kneel when you pray, but, but sometimes it is appropriate. But this is speaking of submission to the Lord as our maker, as our redeemer, as our hope. Jesus humbled himself like no other to die. And then he was raised. Philippians 2, I would encourage you to read the whole chapter, verses 8 to 11. Being found in human form. See, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by coming to take a true human nature that he might fulfill all righteousness for us and die for us and be raised for us and reign for us and come again. 
And being found, it says in Philippians 2, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God, think Father, God the Father has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee, there's our language, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is that, is that your attitude toward Jesus now? One of humble submission. Are you kneeling before Him as your Lord? Because listen to me. That's who He is. That's who He is. You don't make Him Lord by recognizing His Lordship. You submit before the Lordship of the One who is the Lord. And it's proved true by His resurrection. And let me ask you a question. What other Lord would you want? How could you find a better Lord? One who would covenant to come and save you by living under His own law and fulfilling all righteousness, by dying the most horrible death you could ever think, by taking your own eternal hell upon Himself that you deserve to pay, the condemnation you deserve to pay, by rising and reigning for you and promising to come again and promising when He comes again His work in you will be finished. What other Lord would you have? When we're not a Christian, when we're walking in the flesh and pursuing our own way, we want a Lord that will check off on our list and our sin. But when we're coming to faith and under conviction, we start to see He is holy, He is right. His law is good. This sin is ugly. It is to be hated so that I turn from it and trust in Him, submitting to Him. Are you trusting in Christ as Lord? Because He is. No matter how you feel, no matter what you think, you're going to stand before Him someday. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? There's an old chorus. I don't remember how many of y'all remember singing this. If you've been in the church a while, if you hadn't, maybe you don't, you've never heard it. But the old chorus we used to sing was this, and it'll echo in your ears if you ever sang it. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord. Now, here's the language. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some of you are tracking with me. That's good singing because that's revelation. And that's what we're talking about. So our, our first section here ends, I'll end it with bow the, bow the knee to Christ as Lord. Number two, therefore, being Lord, He is judge. Bow the knee to Christ as judge. Look at verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> and you see why, why Paul is, is putting this forward and, and you see it come up here again in verse 10. It's because there was these sinful responses in the church over disputed matters. Some believed they could eat meat uh, and others didn't. And some drink wine and others didn't. And some smoked cigars. and uh, No, those weren't around yet. But the weak ones would condemn the, the, the strong and just write them off. There's no way there, there ain't no, I had a guy tell me this one time. Oh, I gotta be careful. But he, he, there's no way that brother, that person is a Christian because I saw him smoking a cigarette. That's the weak judging the strong. Now, I'm not saying you should take up smoking cigarettes. Okay, because especially if you inhale, it is harmful. There's nothing unpardonable sin. And it's no worse than fried chicken if you eat too much of that. That'll kill you too. 
But see, the weak will judge the strong all the time like that. And then the strong, their opinion can be towards the weak just to kind of roll the eyes and just dismiss them, despise them, not hang around them. And both reactions are wrong. Both reactions are wrong. And so Paul's coming back at, at both of them in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? That's speaking to the weak. And why do you despise your brother or sister? Speaking to the strong. That's not how the, the church is supposed to be. That's how it is in a lot of places. That's caused a lot of church splits. If you're in the grocery store and you see a brother or a sister buying a bottle of wine, do you write them off? Well, you're, you're, number one, you're judging their heart. You're thinking they're going to take that home and get drunk off of it. They might be cooking something with it. Or if you're the stronger side of the thing, if you see a weaker brother in the, in the grocery store and you know it's kind of an offense to them, or maybe it is, you, you run over there with your bottle of wine. Look what I'm getting. Come on, y'all. Paul is saying he's fighting for the unity of the church. He's fighting for the unity of Jew and Gentile. We've talked about that in the church. He's fighting for the unity of the weak and the strong. He's saying, and the implication is you shouldn't be doing this. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? Now, here, look how he connects it. Four. This is connected to our context. Notice the antidote to hypocritical judgment and pride to judging or, or despising is keeping our eyes on Jesus and our knees bent toward him. He says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We will all answer to Christ. Look, what, is that, what does that mean? Here's what Paul is saying. He's the judge, not you. He's the judge. Doesn't stay in your lane. Leave judgment to Him. This doesn't mean we don't do church discipline. It doesn't mean we don't lovingly go up to a brother or sister when they've offended us. It doesn't mean any of that. Notice his hard attitudes of judgment, of condemnation, of despising, of division. No, get your eyes on Christ. And if you get your eyes on Christ and you walk the way Christ walked, you'll, you'll, you'll find yourself a lot of answers that will answer these things. But here's the point. He's the judge, not you. Well, stop it. Stop it. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. This may surprise some of you. Yes, there will be a judgment of believers. Yes, there will be. But here's what I want you to remember that he's already taught in the book of Romans. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not suddenly pulling the rug out from under us and telling us, that, yeah, you really will be saved by your works. And that's not what's doing at all. The judgment of the believer won't be as to whether or not we actually get in by our works. It'll be God vindicating His own work of grace in and through His people. But what He produces in His people is a repentant faith that seeks to walk after Jesus. So don't forget Romans 8.1 when you start thinking about 
standing before God. But this is a truth. I mean, what does Paul say when he applies it in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 10? Whether we are at home or away, what does that mean? Whether we're living or dead, whether we're in the body or not, whether we are home or away, we make it. Now watch this. We make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may perceive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Your good works, which he's worked in you, will sustain the judgment and be rewarded. He will reward his own grace in you. The, the bad part, like the chaff, will be burned away. Remember, it's not a judgment of whether or not you're going to be accepted. If you're a believer, that's already been decided in your justification. Remember, we've talked about that. By faith being united to Christ, you are righteous, and therefore God calls you righteous. You are cleansed from your sin and clothed in his righteousness. And now we're being sanctified. That's what we're talking about. See how we glorify him. Look at it. It says, our aim, our, we make, whether we are home and away, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Whether we are home and away, we make our aim to please Him. Let me ask you a question. Is that where you're aiming? Are you aiming? Do you have a target? Imagine being around somebody with a bow and arrow that don't have a target. If you aim at nothing, guess what? You hit it every time. Is it your aim to please Him? If you love me, we already talked about this, you will keep my commandments. It will be an expression of love. See, we're not, it's not based on our feelings. I don't look inside to see what pleases Him. He's given me what pleases Him. And because He is Savior, gracious, merciful, my gracious, merciful Savior, and my judge, praise God, my Savior is my judge, right? I should be, my aim should be to please Him. My eyes fixed upon Him as my Lord. And yes, as my judge. My eyes are not fixed on my neighbor to see if I can find anything that they are doing wrong. That's a pharisaical mindset. Or saical, however you want to put that together. I'm not hounding my neighbor because they're not keeping my list. I'm not writing them off. I'm not condemning them. Remember, we're talking about disputed matters here. We're not, seeing, we're not talking about seeing someone stealing something and just going, praise God, love covers a multitude of sins. No, we, we help that brother or sister. Not do that. If you spend all... Listen to me. This is kind of one of the things I want to bring out. If you spend all of your time looking for faults in others, there will be no time for proper self-examination. You will be stinking proud. And go around beating people up for their sin. You'll forgive yourself. I mean, if it can be the same thing, can it? And we'll just forgive ourselves all over the place. And then we'll just beat somebody else to death about it. If you spend all of your time looking for the faults in others, there will be no time for you to be before the Lord examining yourself. And examining yourself is important all the time, but especially as we're preparing to come before the Lord in the Lord's Supper. 
Jesus said this in Matthew 7. This is not against all judgment. It's just against hypocritical judgment. And the world gets, you know, you do know that the world can't do very well at Bible interpretation, right? The world fails miserably at Bible interpretation. Anyway. Matthew 7, 3 to 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that's in your own eye? That's supposed to be a dramatic, funny picture. If I'm going to help Corey get a splinter out of his eye, but I've got a four-by-four sticking out of my head, I'm going to be beating him. I'm not helping. All I can do is beat him up with it. He said, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now look what he says, rooting it in the Old Testament, verse 11, back in chapter 14 of Romans. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every, here's our language, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Then we, we saw that in Philippians. Again, I'll read it again just in case it didn't sink in. Therefore God has highly exalted him but bestowed on him the name that is above every name that so that, notice the application. What is, what is the, our recognition of that? So that every, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So second point, bow the knee to Christ as judge and then thirdly is shorter, bow the knee to Christ as God. There's just another proof here of Christ's deity. There's some parallel things going on here. Look in verse 12. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And we know from Scripture that God the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that it will be the Son that we stand before, and this is saying we'll give account of ourselves to God. And in verse 10, he's you know, we're talking about the judgment seat of God, but did you catch it in Second Corinthians? Did you catch what it said in Second Corinthians? The judgment seat of Christ. And that's the best rendering of both of these texts. The judgment seat of God is the best, best and oldest testified rendering in here, in, in chapter 14, and then it, over in Philippians, judgment seat of Christ. Same author, Paul, wrote Romans, wrote Philippians. He sees no difference between the two. In bowing before the judgment seat of Christ, we are bowing before the judgment seat of God. God the Son is there on the throne as the judge. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, Trinity. Revealed in Scripture, the basis of our belief and the, 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 the regulation of our belief in the Trinity comes from Scripture. Everything else is speculation. I want you all to hear me say that. Everything else is speculation. This is ground. This is truth. This is basis. A lot of philosophical discussions going on about the Trinity. When you move outside of and away from Scripture, you are speculating at best. But look, look, look what it says there. Each of us will give an account to himself, to God. 
Jesus, the Son of God, God, man, two natures in one person forever. Look back in verse 9. I'm, I'm, about, I'm almost done with this part. There's way more proofs of the deity of Christ than this. I, I just do this in case you've come out of Jehovah's Witness background or other backgrounds. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord. Catch that term. King of kings and Lord of lords. That he might be Lord. That Greek word is kurios. Guess what it translated in the Old Testament? Yahweh. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So when we say he is Lord, we are recognizing his exalted position, but we are recognizing who he is, is God the Son. So bow the knee to Christ as God. See, Paul is trying to get the the believers in Rome who are sort of lasered in on one another. He's trying to get their, their, their vision changed to above the sun on Christ so that they'll begin to treat each other the way Christ treats them. And it'll remove a lot of this hypocritical judgment. And we're going to talk more about that as we go along further in Romans. But let's stop and apply this a little bit and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. Application point number one, be different but live in unity. We don't aim at being different, but the reality is that there's a lot of things that we're going to be different on. Some people who love the Lord might have a problem with drinking a glass of wine. Some people who love the Lord may not have a problem with drinking. Hopefully we're deriving that from Scripture and that we're not killing one another over it or separating or despising over it. See, leave, be different but live in unity. How do we do that? By leaving the judgment to Him. Especially over what we're discussing in this chapter, those disputed matters. And again, I point you back to previous sermons. Hope I've given you enough today to understand what we've said. Strive. Focus on Christ. Focus on loving one another the way Christ has loved you. Fight for unity. Fight for truth, yes. But be careful that you don't elevate disputed matters to necessary doctrine. That's a problem. Number two, live in light of his judgment. How do I live in light of his judgment? By trusting him and aiming. Remember the aim. Aiming at pleasing him in all things. What do you want to hear when you stand before Jesus? What what do you want to hear from his lips? Y'all know. Some of you are saying it. Well done, a good and faithful servant. And there's hope for that. I love reading about Abraham in the Old Testament and the New and seeing how much stuff is not re-mentioned in the New. Why? Wasn't he was perfect. He was washed away in the blood. There are other characters like that as well. But live, aim at pleasing Him. Aim in His grace. This is not legalism. I'm not making myself right with God, but I'm responding to His love for me by loving Him and seeking to live for Him. Live in light of His judgment. Aim at pleasing Him. Know that your work in the Lord is not for nothing. Number three. 
Know that when you kneel before Christ, you are kneeling before God, God the Son. Father, Son, Son and Holy Spirit, one God, equal in power and glory. Father has entrusted judgment to the Son. We will stand before and kneel before the judgment seat of Christ. Fourthly, rest in His grace. Really, that takes us back where we started, doesn't it? He lived for us. He died for us. He was raised for us. All to make us blameless in His sight. Trust Him and rest in His grace. So you have to be trusted and trusting and rested in order to truly aim at His glory and walk in the power of His Spirit by the Word of God and grow in it so that you growingly live a life that glorifies Him. You have to love Him first. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We focus on and seek to please those that we love. And if we're focusing on Jesus and seeking to please him, that's going to eliminate so many problems in the church and so many things that divide us. We won't all be cookie cutters. We'll have different opinions on some matters. But if we're rested in his grace... And seeking to live for His glory, we'll know how to handle those when we come to them. And we won't beat one another up over them. We won't divide over them. Trust Him. Rest in His grace. Kneel before Him. Live in light of His judgment. Focus. Aim at glorifying Him. This is our duty, and it's a gracious duty. I want to end with a note to the unbeliever. Maybe you're not trusting Christ this morning. Maybe it's not that you're just being stubborn and resistant. Maybe, maybe you haven't thought about it. Maybe you haven't come around. Maybe you haven't been convicted about it. But maybe you are being stubborn and resistant. We know that as unbelievers, we tend to suppress the truth in favor of our sin. I want to say something to you. That is not based on me, but based on God's truth and proved true by the resurrection. You will bow the knee to this Christ. Did you catch it in Philippians 2? Every knee will bow. Isaiah, every knee will bow. You have the opportunity to bow now in repentance and faith and be reconciled to God. And you too can have your judge be your savior. But you can stiff arm him. You can act like you don't believe he existed or whatever games you want to play with the gospel. But it's going to be a bad day when you do that for all of your life and then you find yourself standing before this Christ on that throne. See, the resurrection proves a lot of things. And one of the things the resurrection proves is that you will stand before Jesus and give an account. You will bow the knee, whether in this life or after it, at the judgment. So do so now, while it's the day of salvation. Bow the knee now. How do I bow the knee now? Repent and trust Jesus. God commands. He doesn't suggest. Read the end of Acts 17. He sacrificed His Son. He's proved it true by the resurrection. So now He commands all people everywhere to repent. 
No excuses. But again, what other Lord would you want than one who would die for you this way? Bow the knee to Jesus by repenting and trusting in Him alone for your salvation. Be set free by Jesus. Love me or hate me. Love Him or hate Him. Love the Word or hate it. You will stand before this Jesus someday. Are you ready? Brothers and sisters, may our daily attitude be one of bended knee before Christ the Lord, Christ our Judge, Christ our God, the Son of God, who came to save us and will complete that work when He returns. I'll end with Psalm 95, 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those who don't know You, who are in this room or, or watching over the live stream or who will listen to the recording. I pray that Your Gospel would maybe for the first time that they would understand it. That Your Spirit would take Your Gospel and that people would be born again so that they would repent and trust Jesus. Be forgiven of all their sins. Be imputed the righteousness of Christ. Be adopted as children of God that You love and are sanctified. Save souls through the preaching of Your Word. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, Lord, we need to bow the knee as well. We need to focus on Christ. We need to treat one another with grace. We need to aim at pleasing You. So help us to stop despising one another or judging one another. But to walk arm in arm for the Gospel. I thank You that I don't know personally about a lot of that going on right now, but I know it's our tendency. So set us free to love one another by aiming our hearts and attention on you and treating one another the way you have treated us. So we praise you this morning as Lord. We praise you this morning as judge. We praise you this morning as God. And we ask you to do an amazing work in us with your gospel, by your, with your grace those of us who know you and those who don't. We give you all the praise and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to transition now to the Lord's Supper. Um, quickly, just let me give you a few points. This, Think about this. On the night that Jesus instituted, on the night He transformed that Passover meal, He's in that upper room with His disciples, and He told them that He was the fulfillment of that Passover. He said, now holding up that bread, this is My body, this is My blood, that cup. And He gave it to His disciples. And they, they fellowshiped with Him there as their Passover lamb, the one who lived and died, not died yet when He instituted it, but would be raised from the grave as their Savior. It's a meal for Christians. It's a meal for believers. It's a meal for those who are seeking to walk in pleasing Christ. If you're a Christian, 
who's not running from church discipline, who's not stiff-arming God and holding on to a certain sin that you won't repent of. If you're, if you're a Christian from a like-minded uh, church, you can participate with us. And believers here in Grace Church. But this is a time when we examine ourselves and examine ourselves afresh. And, and that's in the Word. That we confess our sins to God. That we renew, uh, seek to be renewed in this attitude of submission to Jesus and aiming at His glory. So this is a meal for believers. If your children have made a profession of faith and been baptized, they're welcome to take the supper as well. I leave that managing to you, the parents. And if you're not a believer, what do I do? Well, be honest. <laughs> be honest. Let it pass. But don't disengage as you let it pass. Engage and hear the gospel in it. What we have in the Lord's Supper is a visible, tasteable sacrament that Christ left that is a presentation of the gospel. Christ was crushed for our sins. His blood was shed so that we might be reconciled to God and forgiven. So believer, partake of the meal. Unbeliever, hear the gospel in it, but let it pass. I leave that between you and the Lord. Bit of bit of organization. Wine is around the outer ring and juice is in the middle. So outer ring, it may not look exactly like that, but the, if you know the outer ring is wine and the middle is juice, and then the bled, all the bread is gluten-free, so you don't have to worry about that if you have an allergy. But the men will pass out the elements as we sing uh, these, these two songs, and then I will come back up and we will partake together. So hold on to the elements until we partake together as one body. Uh, so that's where we are. But uh, we're going to sing a couple of songs. You remain seated while we sing. It just makes it easier to pass out the elements. And then we'll come back together and partake of the supper.
want to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul, as he's correcting the abuses of the supper in Corinth, and I encourage you to go read the rest of the chapter, uh, he explains where he got his practice of the Lord's Supper and enforces that there in, in Corinth. But verse 23 of chapter 11, he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, and he broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Thus far God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these common elements that serve a gospel purpose in your grace. We thank you for the wine or the juice and the, and the bread, the simplified supper that proclaims your death until you come. Remaining wine or juice and bread, not transformed in any way, yet used by the Spirit to fortify our faith, to cause us to look through these elements to the Christ who was crucified for us, who is now here with us, fellowshipping with us, and in our hearts as we partake, we feed in our hearts by faith on your broken body and your shed blood. So bless these common elements. Set them apart for a holy purpose. Communicate your gospel through them. Save sinners. Fortify the faith of saints. We thank you for it. In Jesus' holy name. First you heard that Paul said, after saying he'd received it from the Lord, he said, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, distributed it. And this bread pictures him being broken for us. That, that, that true body that he took to himself, that he fulfilled all righteousness in, was crushed, as Isaiah says, not for his faults or sins or errors, but for our iniquities. So eat this bread and look through it to Christ and feed on Him believing that He took the curse that was due you by being broken for you. Eat and remember Christ. same way he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me his blood being a part for the whole of his sacrifice he was sacrificed 
that we may be forgiven. And we drink this cup and believe that Christ's sacrifice, the blood of Christ, washes away all your sin. Drink and remember Christ. Lord, we, by your grace, by the Spirit's work in our heart, we trust in your broken body, in your shed blood, taken together, your death for us. You were telling the truth when you said on the cross, it is finished, to tell us die, paid in full. Our sin debt, paid in full by the pure Lamb of God. Work in us the proper gratitude for such a great salvation. Work in us the proper love for you, that love that produces devotion to you. May our love be increased and therefore our joyful keeping of your commandments increase. May we aim at pleasing you who have sacrificed yourself for us. Thank you for your grace. Help us to both glorify and enjoy you as a result of it being applied to us and to grow in it. It's in Jesus' name.